Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Jade. Hello, Soph. How are we doing today? Not well. Oh, dull. <laughs> Bit stressed. What's going on? Um, well, look, to many this would seem like a really minor issue, but obviously we work in the social media landscape. That we do. And out of nowhere for... We still don't know the reason. I have been suspended from Instagram. We're going on three days. I was really cruisy on the weekend. I was like, this is nice. Have the weekend off Instagram. I'll wake up in the morning. It'll be back. It'll just be a 24-hour thing. A 24-hour bug. Little 24-hour glitch because apparently I've gone against community guidelines. Yeah, with your pregnant nudity. And look, now it's the work week again. I'm meant to be getting back to work. I have no account. I don't know if my reviews are working. I don't know. I don't know if I'm getting it back. And all of a sudden I'm very, very stressed. Yeah, it's it's a very uncomfortable situation to be in. And I think if you haven't got work on an Instagram account, then you can sit there and go, oh, you poor thing, blah, blah, blah. But I've actually been in a situation like this where you have no control or understanding as to what happened, why it's happening and when it's coming back. Or if it's coming if back. If it's coming back. And it is, it's actually a real, it's, it's your whole it's your work life. Well, it's not your whole. This is actually your whole work life, but the, the, a major well, part of your life. parts yeah. of my work. And she doesn't know if she's going to continue on. <laughs> oh, like I've literally got jobs sitting in my email and I'm like, well, I don't have anywhere to post that job <laughs> to. So <laughs> cool collab. Do they still want to work with me if I've got three followers on my new page? So anyway, watch this space. Thank you to the people that reached out and they mm. were concerned. I'm sorry. We did have a few listeners write in who were personally upset because they thought I'd actually blocked them. I have not blocked anyone. I have not deleted anyone. I've not deleted my account. I'm just in suspension. I've been a naughty girl. And she doesn't know why. I don't know why. Yeah. So my husband doesn't believe me when I say that I haven't been showing off my new prego titties because we're both getting used to them. And I thought, well, if I was going to get suspended anyway, I should have just shown them off. I know, but you didn't. No, and now I have no platform to show them. So anyway, how's your week been? Yeah, my week has been not as stressful as yours. I had a good weekend. I have a high and a low to share. Mm. The high is that both my girls are getting a school award today, which is really, really, really good. And the low is that I'm here because... <laughs> I'm here because I've got to work and I'm not going to be there to see them get the award. So that's a bit sad, but I'm sure they'll be fine and I can come home and they can tell but me all about did it. did you use things you learnt from this episode to not get in a spiral of guilt over that? Yes. You can't change the situation. No. You're I, working. Yep. And it is what it is. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's something else I want to talk about and share with everyone. Do you? I forgot to mention this last week, but some beans were spilt while we were over in Fiji to my husband. Oh, I do know. And for those that have listened to most episodes, you'll know that we did a entire episode on Botox and I admitted that I had never told my husband that I've had Botox going on a couple of years now. What do you reckon, like every few months for a couple of years? Well, I've got goodish skin. So yeah. every six months I would, you know, get some Botox in my forehead and continue on. And I was in Fiji and sitting there, I was on my third drink and he sat down, the kids were there and he sat down and he was like, see, 
I just don't understand why people get Botox. And when he said that, I felt personally attacked because... Was it in response to someone? He was. Someone was walking past and in my defence, that girl, she had a lot going on. It was not Botox. We are not blaming Botox for this person. And it overtook my secret and I just said, well, there's something I need to share with you. And he said, what? I said... Botox actually looks like this and pointed to myself. And he was like, what do you mean? I said, I have Botox. And it's seriously, obviously not a big deal because look how natural I look and you haven't even noticed. And he's like, when did you get it? I go, oh, I've had it for years. And he was like, are you kidding me? And And then he sort of like sat there and he was a little bit disappointed that I didn't tell him. And then he went on to say, look, what are you going to look like? You're going to look like that person in two years. I said, this is why I didn't want to tell you because of that response. I said, now you can see that I've actually had it for a few years and I have not changed. You have not noticed. So that's my point. And he sort of sat on that. I felt a little bit bad because I didn't tell him and I'm usually, so, I'm an open book. I tell him And everything. I feel like you said something about, because you were messaging me, you go, uh-oh, <laughs> Harry just found out my secret. I did it right. You know, I sent that to you in the middle of what was going argument, on. And I remember, I remember saying, well, it's not really a secret because you've literally shared it with thousands upon thousands of listeners on the podcast all the time. And I said, I wonder if he's more offended that you didn't tell him or he's more embarrassed that so many people knew and he didn't know that about his wife? So I asked him and he said, absolutely, I have no issue that you've told everyone. That's fine. And he said, you can now go on and tell them that I do now know. And when he came back and sat down five minutes later, he handed me another drink and he's like, this is for my little baby-faced angel. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, now you're taking things way too far. But then Sophie came over and we were recording and she, and he's like, oh, yeah, I finally found out. And she goes, well, you would have found out years ago if you had a bloody listen to our podcast. But the funniest thing was that day when I came over, he goes, oh, okay, so yesterday I was listening to your period episode. I'm like, here he goes. Now he's listening. Of all the ones. I know. But I'm like, now he wants to know things about his wife that he doesn't get to find out in real life. So we've got a new listener, Harry. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) We hope you get a lot out of today's episode. Yeah. No, but seriously, today's episode... Tell We've us. said this a lot, but we but really hands down, this is up there. Both of us, as soon as we got off this call, were like, that's yeah. one of the best chats we've ever had. We chat with Dr. Sophie Brock. She's a sociologist, which she goes into kind of not a what sociopath. that is. <laughs> not a sociopath, not a psychologist. She's a sociologist. And we talk all about why being a good enough mother is good enough or better than striving to be the perfect mother. But it goes into so much more than that. We chat about mum guilt, about societal expectations, about our generation versus older generations and the way that we parent, about connection, so many things. Mm. Sorry, a bit of reflux. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like since we've had this chat, every person I've seen, I've like paraphrased, I've paraphrased a little bit of this conversation to them and every person has been like, wow, that's so interesting. I'm definitely going to listen. So holding you to it. No, we absolutely love this chat. It was so refreshing to feel more understood. I know we say that a lot, but we genuinely felt so much lighter after the episode and we hope you guys all do too. So enjoy. Hello, Dr. Sophie Brock, and thank you for joining us today. For our listeners who haven't come across you before, are you able to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure thing. Well, thank you for inviting me on. I'm looking forward to this conversation. And what I do is a little bit different to what your typical job title would be. So technically, I'm a motherhood studies sociologist. And what that means in really simple terms is that I study and research and I'm interested in the way that we experience motherhood in our society and culture and all of the different things that go into shaping how we individually experience becoming a mum and moving through motherhood. So that's a little bit about 
kind of my job title, but I'm also a single mom to my five-year-old daughter, newly turned five-year-old daughter. And I'm really passionate about this topic in spreading information about how motherhood socially constructed and how we can take our power back as mums ultimately. I have a feeling that you're going to make a lot of people feel very much understood which is going to be fantastic. A lot of what you do is talking about what it is to be a good enough parent. Can you please elaborate on this? Sure. Well, I might backstep one moment and say, well, what is the idealization of what it means to be a good parent or a perfect mother? And then we can kind of move into good enough parenting as a way to move through that. And so the way that I like to describe when I first start talking to somebody about how motherhood exists socially is to use an analogy, which probably sounds really random at first because it's about a fish and a fish tank, but I use it to try and help set the scene for how we can see our within the society that we live within as mothers. So if everyone is to imagine a round glass fish tank, and that tank represents our society, that's our world, that's the world that we live within. And then we're the individual fish inside and we're swimming around doing our mothering, looking after our children, managing all of the different things that just we do. Just keep swimming, just, just keep swimming. swimming. And three second memory loss. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yep. There's lots of ways we can move with this. And ultimately what this analogy it asks us to do is to think about how we as individuals are situated inside of our social world. So now let's imagine we get out a big black star and we start writing out on the tank all the different rules of what it means to be a good mum. So what are all of the things that go into what makes up the perfect mum? And the thing is, I'll start listing some of them in a moment and hopefully we can start to think about, wow, these are, these are all encompassing. We don't really know them because we don't get sat down when we become a mum and say, this is exactly what you need to do in order to be a good mum. We absorb these rules through the water that we're swimming within. They're in our culture, they're in our media, our advertising, through social media, through how we've seen our mothers mother us, through the comments that we hear other people say about what makes a good and a bad mum. They're embedded within the fabric of our society. And so we pick them up often unknowingly and it starts when we're children ourselves around what it means to be a mother. And some of these that exist today for us is, well, the perfect mother bounces back after pregnancy. The perfect mother became pregnant easily and she wanted a baby. She was trying for a baby. She became pregnant in a relationship, probably a marriage, right? She's in within a certain age range. So she's not too young because that's irresponsible. And she's not too old because that's irresponsible. Think of the the baby and she was too selfish and self-centered to think about this earlier in her career, right? So you have to be a mother within a particular age range. She doesn't have a disability, right? So she's able-bodied. She is neurotypical, right? She exists within the framework of what we set out as being normal, right? She's often positioned as white, as middle-class, as financially stable. She engages in her mothering in a way that feels like it all comes naturally. So I was meant to be a mother. I had this instant connection with my baby. I had the perfect birth as well. That all went perfectly for me. And I've stepped into my role as a mother easefully and I feel like I'm glowing and I'm this natural mother and I breastfeed exclusively, but then I also don't breastfeed for too long because that's not <laughs> what a good mother does. Right? And I'm not in public. And not in public. Definitely not in public. And I also make sure to let my partner and others have experiences of feeding the baby. So my baby also takes a bottle. And so we can start to see even as I'm talking, there's lots of contradictions in what the perfect mm. mother is. So on the one hand, she always puts her children first above and anything else, but she also self-cares really well because we know we have to put our oxygen mask on before we tend to our kids. So we've got that as a pressure as well. She also works, so she's not economically dependent on anyone. She, and I'm using air quotes here, contributes to her family financially, right? So she is not relying on anyone else for an income. She never puts work before her children though, but she's mm. a really good employee or business owner. Yeah. She excels at work, but she never lets her kids down because of work. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we could spend the whole episode talking about the perfect mother because it extends to the food that we feed our children, the way our children behave, uh, whether our children are good little children, good little girls, good little boys, because our children are seen as a reflection of our mothering. 
right? That it creates a lot of pressure mm-hmm. and that leads us to feeling like we need to control our children when it comes to behavior. Sleep is a big one. Do you have a good baby? Are they a good baby? Right. No, they're an asshole. Exactly. Yeah. All of it comes back to the language and the expectations that our culture has set up around who is the perfect mother. And as we start to realize when we name it, and this stuff isn't just existing unconsciously within us, we go, actually, who is the perfect mother? She doesn't exist. She doesn't exist. Who is able to do all of that? No one. And we might have someone in our mind who we've put on a pedestal as being the perfect mum. Like, oh, well, I can't do it, but Jessica from my son's school can. She's a perfect mum. She can, she's on the PNC and she always makes food from scratch and she volunteers. And we never see someone's full picture. We never see the full story of their lives. And something that, you know, we can go on to dig into a little more is that even if we could be the perfect mother, so even if we could meet all of those expectations and more that I just set out, which are impossible, that wouldn't be what's best for our children. That would actually be detrimental and harmful to our children and their development, um, particularly around the prescriptions and rules of how we feel as mothers. So we're always meant to feel fulfilled by motherhood. We're always meant to feel calm, patient. We don't experience anger. We don't experience Mm -hmm. boredom. We don't experience Mm -hmm. apathy. We don't experience irritation. We don't want to do anything outside of our motherhood because we're so fulfilled by our motherhood, (laughs) right? So we're we're inside this tank. We have all these rules around us. We've absorbed these rules. And as I'm speaking, I'm wondering if people are thinking, resonating, like, oh, yeah, I feel that. Oh, yeah, I judge myself over that. And we can do so unknowingly because this is how it operates. It's the social destruction of motherhood. And right about now, I'm one of those fish that's upside down dead, (laughs) floating at the top of the box. Because it's all too much. (laughs) It's way too much. It's all too much. And sometimes, depending on where you are in the tank, some mothers do have it harder than other mothers when it comes to this. Because some mothers are automatically excluded from the perfect mother myth without doing anything, right? So if they have a disability, if their child has a disability, if they are a single mother, Right. There are various ways where actually you're already sitting outside of the rules. And then sometimes what can happen is you have to try and work harder in the other areas to make up. So I'm a single mom. I don't meet up in that way. I'm going to self-sacrifice so hard for my kids to know that they will get the best version and the perfect mother, even though I I sit outside of I don't have a relationship. And so why, let's just say this isn't impossible and it is possible to be perfect. Thank you, birds, for joining in on the conversation. They're laughing at you. Why is that not beneficial for our kids? Yeah, because when we set ourselves up to a standard of trying to live up to a standard of perfection, we set the same rules for our children and we're setting them up to fail. We're setting them up to feel not good enough and never enough because they never can be because they're human, as are we. So how we teach our children how to be human is by being human ourselves. And when we try and live up to an ideal of the perfect mother, we're trying to live up to a myth, something that doesn't exist. And we will always feel as though we're failing and we're not enough. And unfortunately, unintentionally, that can be a legacy we then pass on to our children. And it can lead to a whole bunch of other things that we can talk a little more about. But we know just looking at the research and literature, mothers who try and live up to the perfect mother myth or who the way it's framed is they internalize intensive mothering ideology is the way that it's framed. It's a theory by Sharon Hayes. The more that we do that as a mother, the higher our chances of depression anxiety, lower well-being, lower life satisfaction, higher rates of all pervasive guilt that takes over our lives, right? It has really significant impacts on our mental health, our well-being and how we experience our lives. So it has detrimental impacts for us as mums, but also it robs us of the experience we could be having of our motherhood and it takes away something from our children, which I know can be painful to hear at first because the reason why we're trying to live up to all of this is because we love our kids so deeply. Yeah, We would do anything for them and that includes cutting away parts of ourselves, stepping back from parts of who we are, of berating ourselves, of saying that we aren't enough and we need to be more Mm -hmm. because we're entrusted with their lives. This is huge. And so part of naming some of this is at first it can feel like rattling and it can feel like a tearing down of 
our beliefs, but that's part of the process actually in changing how we experience our motherhood and that's a gift for our children. Because I feel like it almost emphasises failure more because then you're saying, well, even the perfect parent isn't good enough because the perfect parent is detrimental and that can almost, yeah, that can almost be another hard thing to hear because you're going, oh, everything I thought that was good motherhood is actually a myth. So that can be hard in itself. And this is what can definitely lead into postnatal depression. And it did with me. I remember one clear time that I sat in my room staring at my closet and I actually, I physically and mentally went numb inside because I was thinking, how can I give myself like perfectly to every one of my children now that I have three. And because I couldn't I couldn't work it out, I felt like I was just not good enough. I was just not good enough at anything I could do anymore because I just, I could not work that out. Yeah. And the thing is, regardless of how much we try, none of us will meet it. Okay. So if we're telling ourselves that these are really big values for me, that I will not, I will be perfect for my children and that I can do it. And if we're somebody who particularly pre-motherhood lean towards any kind of perfectionist tendencies or would identify in that way, something that can run through our head when we first hear about this work, and I work with mothers a lot around this, is interesting, Sophie, interesting research. Yes, I hear you. Okay. It's a myth. It's built. All right. So for other mothers, that's great. Let's talk about good enough mothering. <laughs> Yep. But I know that I work really hard and that I hold myself to higher standards. And so maybe for other mothers, yeah, let's talk about this and inviting self-compassion. Not for me. I'm going to go the extra mile for my kids. So that can be something we could we can tell ourselves. And you know what? Sometimes we're not ready to let go of the myth. Sometimes we're not ready to say, actually, maybe I do want to make some changes in my belief system and in my life. And that's okay. You know, that's okay if we don't want to go there yet. We just tuck this away for when we're ready to have a look at it again, because it can feel like a lot, but regardless of how much we try, there will be ways every single day that we fall outside of this myth of perfection. And the sooner we can see that, the more likely we are to be able to start taking little steps and movements towards reclaiming our motherhood. And we're doing this, why? Not to feel worse about ourselves, (laughs) not to make motherhood harder, not to make it harder for ourselves, but it's ultimately what is liberating. It feels like a freeing. And it is good to like, at the end of the day, say, I fucking nailed it today. Like it is really good to feel like that, but it doesn't have to happen every single day. But it also doesn't have to be perfect to fucking nail it. No. You so what are we, it. yeah, what are we nailing? Okay. So let's pull it apart and go, all right, what are my beliefs and what are my values about what it means to be a mother? And then what's the perfect mother myth? Because they did. So you're literally, we always talk about expectations and lowering them, but it really does come down to what you genuinely think of yourself and your expectations, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we can say lower the expectations, but in other ways, I would just think about like, cancelling some expectations and keeping some high, you know, like Mm. actually it's not about saying, well, I'm not good enough because it's too hard. And if I only had this, it could be better. And if I had the village then it would make like, yeah, that's one way we can go about it. But actually we also want to feel really empowered in our motherhood. It's often a top, I imagine for everyone who listens to this podcast, it's a top value in your life. Like mothering is important to you. Your children and family are important to you. And it's okay to be able to value that. And so pulling it apart a little bit to go, well, what do I actually believe? Do I actually believe that it's detrimental for my children that I'm going to work? Let me unpack that a little bit. Mm. What am I making that mean? Do I actually believe that I'm a bad mum for giving them frozen food? Do I actually believe that? Let me pull that apart a little bit. So just to pull apart, what are the expectations that we've taken on that we're never asked to carry, that we've inherited from our family, from our society and culture, from expectations of other people? And then what are the things that are actually really important to me and my family and my kids? And that's where we can start to take our power back and shed some of the socialization Mm. of the perfect mother myth. It's so interesting. So just small steps at a time because quite a few people sent in, you know, it's all well and good to know that the perfect mother doesn't exist. But if you have those perfectionist tendencies or, you know, you've just been fed this lie for 20, 30, 40, however many years, how do you 
you know, it's all well and good to say, oh, yeah, it doesn't exist, but how do you start? And that's so true. It's going, is that actually something that I believe or is that just something I've been told? And one of the things I found so interesting about the questions that came in when we said we were going to speak to you about this was that no matter where people sat in motherhood, so, for example, we got lots of questions going, my kids don't attend daycare. I feel so much pressure to teach them everything that they would learn in daycare. How do I do this? And then on the other end, we got all these questions saying, I work full time. Am I fucking up my child? How do I make sure that my child's okay, even though I work full time? And it showed me so clearly that no matter which one you're doing, you're, you feel like you're doing it wrong. And it's like when you head out in public and, you know, maybe you're out for a couple of hours and someone else is looking after your kids. If someone runs into you, the first thing they say is, where's Poppy? Where's Goldie? Who's looking after them? I'm like, I don't know, their dad. But then they also, as soon as you're postpartum, the first thing people ask is, well, when are you returning to work? And, and, and so how do we, how do we respond, I guess, to these societal questions? And how, how do we believe that the way we're doing it is okay and is enough? Yeah. So as you've just articulated there, again, there is actually no way to win this. Yeah. There's no way to mum hack our way to the perfect mother myth. It doesn't exist. And we get the pressure not only externally, but internally from ourselves. And so the place that I would say to start with is to go, where do you feel guilt in motherhood? Because guilt can be our access point to pull in apart what is the perfect mother myth we've internalized and what are our values. So when someone says, well, it's all well and good to say there's the no, there's no perfect mother, but like then what? That doesn't really change how much yeah. I feel. Mm. Okay, well, let's get really granular and talk about some examples of where you feel the guilt and where you feel like you're not a good enough mother and pull them apart a little more. So when it comes to working, for example, ask ourselves, okay, I'm feeling guilty because I'm sending my child to daycare and I feel as though I, the stay-at-home mum is the perfect mum and I'm taking away something from my child by going to work. Okay, pull that apart a bit. First off, where is your choice and agency here? So is that guilt useful or is it just keeping us stuck in a story that we can never change? Do you have the option to step back from work? Is that a possibility? Do you have the option to change something in your life or in your family situation where it would afford you the opportunity to not be engaged in paid work? Like that's the first thing because most people don't. Yeah, <laughs> most people nowadays need Most people to, need to yeah. engage in some way. And so then if, if that's the answer and we say, actually, well, no, I need to engage in, in work in some way. All right, well, how is your guilt serving you? And how is your guilt taken away from you? Feeling the guilt and telling ourselves the perpetual story if we're taking away from our kids because we're engaging in work or not, whatever, right? We can just substitute that with whatever we want. Mm. Actually keeps us stuck and self-focused on ourselves and not our kids. Because here we are feeling so guilty and we're not a good enough mother and we miss the moments that are present right in front of us because we're thinking constantly about how it should be differently or could be differently, but we don't have the agency or capacity to change it. So guilt actually can strip us of our self-agency in those ways. And I want to mention in a moment after this how that leads to anger and the anger-guilt trap. But if we go on the other hand, okay, actually, there is some flexibility here. Maybe I could step back from work a little bit. Do I actually want that? I actually really <laughs> That was going to be my next exactly. question. What if you just love work? <laughs> I actually really love work. Oh, I feel guilty about that. Would a good mother send their child to daycare even if they weren't working? What would that look like? What would that feel like? Okay, let me pull that apart a little bit more. If we look at the research, we know that actually there is not clear-cut evidence to say that it's the best thing for you to send your child to daycare or the best thing for the mother to work or not work. It all comes back to ultimately when we take out socioeconomics, because sometimes for some children, it is the best place for them to be in, in care in that way. Yeah. When we strip it all back, what matters is how the parents feel about their decision, <sighs> not what it is. So there's some research from 2015 by someone, an author called Green, and they, there's a whole bunch of time use data as well. And they look at, okay, what's best for the children? Is it when the parent, the mother is working five days a week, or is it when she's a stay-at-home mother, or is it a combination of them? And they found that actually it didn't really matter. What mattered was how stressed the mother felt and how happy she felt in her decision. Wow. Yeah. And we also know we have this narrative now that um, we have an idealization of how things used to be in the past, of how stay-at-home mothers and we have the perfect homemaker idealized. 
and we think now we're working, we're stressed, we're not with our kids enough. This research is a little dated now. It's from 2010, though, so not too long ago. I feel old. They found actually mothers in 2010 who were working in paid work spend more time with their children than stay-at-home mothers in the 1950s. What? How is that possible? Because when we're with our children now, we're so focused on being present with them, engaging with them, we're actually spending more time with them than we were in the 1950s when the structure of the family looked different. The nature of community looked different. The idea of what the perfect mother was looked different. She was the perfect wife rather than the perfect mother. She was the perfect uh, homemaker. She was the perfect domestic mm. goddess, right? And she put a like, this is my, my dad was born around that time. They got sent outside to play, got mm. sent down the street. Got they, you know, there there wasn't this pressure to sit down on the floor and play Lego with them for two hours. Yeah. Children should be seen and not heard. But there was an eight-hour roast in the oven. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And look, you know, this is not saying necessarily that's the way we need to go back to or could go back to, but it's to put it in perspective a bit because we have all these pressures on us now to be all of those things wrapped up in one. And it's actually the job of like three or four people what we're being expected to do as well yeah. today. Do you think social media and having the internet has made us so aware and so paranoid about motherhood and parenting? Because I always have this conversation with my grandma and I'm like, I just feel like back in your day, you didn't really talk about parenting. You didn't really talk about like every issue. And nowadays, all we talk about, we have a freaking podcast on parenting. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we're just so... But I think there's pros and cons Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But do you think that it is just way more highlighted now because we've got more resources? I would answer that in two ways. One has been there's been an intensification of like the intensive mothering ideology. So what is behind that basically is that to be the perfect mum, there's intensive focus on everything, including how you mother. And so we're like researchers and we become experts in our mothering and there's like a professionalization of mothering, which, yes, ironic, I have a podcast and have a whole business on motherhood, right? Yeah. So there's this intensive focus that didn't exist in previous generations and that can be detrimental because it means that where's our laser focus it's so much on the mother role and motherhood that we can lose parts of ourselves outside of that. And when that can be particularly problematic is when our children grow and become adults and mm. we've got nothing of ourselves to come back to. And so that can be a challenge. And certainly there's research looking at the detrimental impacts of social media, particularly in perpetuating the ideal motherhood, right, of how we dress our children, what our days look like, all of that, and the performance, the performative aspect of it. Mm. At the same time, though, I think, again, let's be careful to not idealise how things used to be. My grandmother, my great-grandmother, they also struggled, you know, and just because they didn't talk about their challenges doesn't mean their challenges didn't exist. And there have been all sorts of ways that women throughout generations have been asked to silence and conform themselves mm. into a version that other people want to see of us. And so I also think it's really valuable for us to be having honest conversations around what it means to be a mother today. So how can we have those discussions with our mother, mother-in-law, aunt, grandma? So many people wrote in saying, I believe that the perfect mother myth is a myth, but I feel like I have so much pressure from someone from an older generation who comes into my house for my house to appear a certain way, for my children to behave a certain way, for dinner mm. to look a certain way. How can we explain these things to them? Okay, so... A couple of things here. First is let's go back to the fish tank analogy. That tank with the rules that are written on the tank changes in through generations. So what was written on the tank of mm. your mum and your great-grandmother or your friend who lives on the other side of the world, they'll be mm. slightly different. And so it can be really helpful for us to remember that when we feel a sense of judgment from other generations about how we mother, that judgment is coming from the rules they've internalized based on their period of time in which they became a mother. And it's a different context. They're facing different pressures. We're different people. We have different children. Like there's so many differences, right? But the rules they've internalized probably look different to the ones that we have. And so there can be this like disjuncture there sometimes between generations where it's like you don't quite get each other and you can't see things through my perspective. And 
you had five kids, you know, in in seven years. Like, how how do you not get this? And apparently it was so easy for you. And why am I struggling with two kids? Like there can be this comparison. And so coming back to first off, remember we're mothering in different contexts. But the second thing is, which I know can be, you know, I preface this with saying sometimes it can feel like a jolt and it can feel hard to have this recognition. But ultimately we can't change how other people perceive us or feel about us and how much something hurts us or sticks to us or ties us up in knots, right, around how our house looks and feeling like we need to get it ready before they come over and that comment that they made about this, how much that really sticks to us is impacted by how deeply we've internalised those judgments Mm. on ourselves. And so in some ways doing this work can be freeing not only for us, but it can free us of judgments from others because when we receive the judgments, they just don't land in the same way because we're actually not judging ourselves as harshly anymore. I remember one of my best friends when we first started becoming close said to me, I love being friends with you and one of the things I love is that when I come to your house, I then realise that like the way my house looks is fine and whenever you come over, I never feel a pressure to like clean up before you come over because I know what like areas of your house look like. And I remember at the start being like, fuck, that was a backhanded compliment. Like, oh, I don't really know how I feel about that. And then I thought about it a bit longer and I was like, that's great. I don't want you to have to feel like you need to put on a show before I come over. I was like, no, I'm going to take that as a compliment. But I feel the same. I feel the same with you as well, because (laughs) like yesterday my house was clean. I'm like, yes, I look like a legend, even though the cleaner did it. And then today it's literally been a few hours and she's back and it there is shit everywhere. And I'm like, is that why you haven't let you let me in the back door? (laughs) Yeah, no, but I'm like, but she just doesn't care. Like that's just not something that she judges me on. Not that she judges, but I I guess that for me, I judge me on the cleanliness of my house. So when people come over, it's an expectation I have on myself to have a clean house. But really, does anyone care? Probably not. And if they did care, should it affect me? Well, it shouldn't, but it does. Yeah. And what's really interesting about what you've both just shared is if we think back to this analogy of the fish tank and the fish, I call it ramming the tank. So I like imagine like a little goldfish and they're like going at the tank. You might have seen it. They're like hitting the tank. When we push back against the rules of the perfect mother myth, that's kind of what we're doing. So we're trying to make little cracks and dents in that tank because what's exciting is we can change the tank. Like it looked different for for past generations. It can look different for our daughters when they're mothers, right? And so every time we mother in a way that is aligned with our values and what we actually feel is important in our lives and may fly in the face of the perfect mother myth. We're creating these little micro cracks and imagine just taking the analogy further because I love analogies. As you're swimming, you're changing the water, you're changing the direction, you're creating a current. And what that can do is it can help other mothers come with you. And that's what that example is showing with the housework, right? Actually, by you in love a good ramming. (laughs) Love a good ramming. You are able to ram the tank and support other mothers in doing so. But also here's the thing, other women, other mothers will be at a stage in their motherhood or just the nature of their life right now. They're not interested in tank ramming and seeing you ram the tank is super confronting for them. Yeah. And that's where judgment can come in and these so-called mummy walls, right? Because it's like, do not upset the status quo. Do not release yourself from that because that actually feels like a devaluing of what I value. Mm. So it's it, it works in both ways. So, so many people wanted to know how much attention or one-on-one time do our kids actually need each day? Such an interesting question. And I think the the question itself is reflective of how deeply people internalize intensive mothering, because that's, that's part of it, that you devote your attention, undivided attention to your children 24 seven, every time they want to play with you, you say yes, and you do so excitingly, and you engage in an imaginative play and all of that, right? 
So I'll preface this also with I'm not a child development expert. That's not my area of research. But based on what I understand from the literature, it's actually very little. What are we talking about when we're talking about presence and being with our children? Because I'm sure we all have experiences of we're there, we're in the room, we're supposedly playing with them, we're not there. (laughs) (laughs) I.e. every time I play shops. (laughs) Yeah, we're not really there. Okay, and it's not putting the pressure on ourselves to say, great, now I have to be truly present. It's saying dial down the pressure. Five minutes of engaged, connected, attuned, present time with our children where we are there and we are witnessing them and we are listening to them and we do see them and we do hear them and they do get us and all of us. Five minutes of that is worth way more than two hours of playing when you don't feel like playing and you're feeling resentment and you're feeling stressed and you're feeling pulled in a whole other bunch of directions. And children are really good at picking up when we're confident and not. And what can happen is they push us further, right? I want more of you, mummy. I want more of you, mummy. I want more of you, mummy, because they're not feeling us there with them. And what can that lead, lead to for us? Two things. Well, one, frustration, anger, and irritation and guilt. And I wonder if I can quickly speak to that anger, guilt trap and how that then works. Please do because I have plenty of it. Yeah. You feel guilty, right, that you're not enjoying this time with your children or, you know, substitute any of the other things we've spoken about, but this one around presence. You feel guilty and you feel guilty you're not living up to the perfect mother myth. And so what is part of rectifying that mean? It means giving more of yourself, self-sacrificing more, doing more. So we give away more of ourselves to try and feel enough, it'll never work. Then what happens, we feel more depletion on top of our existing depletion when we're under-resourced, overstretched, overwhelmed, and we're carrying the weight of, as I said, four people trying to do what we're doing. And we get to a point where we will face some sort of trigger with our, and it's usually with our kids. They're great at being able to do this for us. Yeah. We have nothing left in the tank, right? Like we, we have nothing like we're at boiling point. We are, and it could be something really small, like someone's drained the bowl. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Often it's something small actually. And we snap and we lose it and we yell at our kids or we scream or we slam a door or we do something which we know is outside of our values. And we know is not conducive to the way that we want to mother but it all comes out. It explodes. It's like that lava that's been bubbling for the whole day, the whole week, the whole month, Mm -hmm. the year, right? And the the bubbling of that lava is not just all this stuff about the perfect mother myth. It's I've just had a fight with my partner. I've just got a bill in that I can't pay. I just feel like I'm letting down my boss, like all these other things. And then bam, we overflow and we erupt. And afterwards, we all know what happens. We feel incredibly guilty. Great. Look what I've done. Okay, so then what do we do? We try and live up to the perfect mother myth again. We self-sacrifice harder and it goes around in a cycle over and over and over. I love that. I actually recently have changed my tactic to bettering myself at parenting in a way that I feel less guilty. And it's been a thing when I'm always on my phone doing work or emails when my nine-year-old comes up to me, she'll go, hey, mum. And if I, if I go, mm, or I give her like, yep, like a really short answer, she'll go, oh, it doesn't matter. And that made me feel guilty because I was like, oh, fuck, every time I give her this short answer, she doesn't even want to come at me because she knows that I'm probably not going to give her what she she wants or she just needs an ear. And lately I've changed my mentality to whenever she comes up to me, think of it as a break from what you're doing on your phone. Think of it as you're stopping there instead of going around asking your children if they need help or giving them undivided attention. They're coming to you and you're going to give it to them when they genuinely are asking for it. So she comes to me now with a question. She'll go, hey, mum. And I'll go, one second, babe. I'll put my phone down. I'll go, yes, literally look at her. She feels happy because we're having this one-on-one conversation about something she actually wants to talk about. And we have this communication. I'm not stressed about it because I'm giving it all. I'm putting what I I really don't want to do aside. And I feel good because I've listened to her. She feels good because we've had a conversation and I haven't literally just cut her off. And don't get me wrong, there are definitely times where I go, one second, like, fuck, you know, 
but then I always apologize after it. And I feel like that's another way of me lessening my guilt, just going, sorry, I was stressed. I probably shouldn't have said that, but I did. And let's move on. And they're the two things that I've really taken this year on board with my kids to not feel so overwhelmed about how I can be the perfect parent. Because since having postnatal depression, I well and truly understand you absolutely cannot. Like it is just impossible and you don't want to be. You want to be the the good enough parent. Yeah, I, I want to say two things about that story that you've shared with us. And thank you for sharing that as an example. That's a really beautiful example of how you've used your guilt for growth. Hmm. So you've had a sense of guilt, right? And you've gone, what's this about? What am I called to do here? What's important to me right now? And what's my capacity? Actually, you know what? I can use that, hey, mum, as an invitation to place down what isn't super important to me in that moment and be present. And so I think of these like two guards on your shoulder. One's a guilt guard working on behalf of your values. One's a guilt guard working on behalf of the perfect mother myth. And for you, you've tuned into that experience of guilt and said, hey, this is guilt working on behalf of my values. There's something I want to shift here. And then you've shifted it. Right. And the second thing about what you've said there is the repair. So we know from all the research, the most important thing is doing the repair with our children Mm. when we have the rupture. And in fact, we know that the majority of time we will be in repair with our children rather than in connection. So we're only able to meet their needs or be connected with them 30% of the time. Wow. So it's one, this is research from Edtronic, and it shows that actually it's only about 30% of the time that we can be in connection. Otherwise, we're often in a rupture, so in disconnection or in a repair meeting. And we also know that coming (laughs) coming into repair and working on that repair with our children and showing up and saying sorry and owning it, owning our mistakes and saying, hey, I could have done that differently next time. And this is how I'm going to try and do it differently next time. Doing that leads to deeper connection with our children than if we'd never had the rupture to begin with. And obviously this is not to say, let's all go make ruptures with our kids. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, we will regardless. (laughs) You don't need to tell us. We didn't need the permission. (laughs) But, But this is it, right? You don't need the permission because it will happen because this is the nature of human relationships. And so what we also are doing with our kids we're showing them how to repair when they rupture. Yeah. We're showing them what it means to look like a human being who has self-reflection and capacity for asking for forgiveness and empathy. And I mean, when we're modeling all of this for them, we teach them through how we live our lives. So I love that. I love that. I think we touched on it earlier when you said, oh, now we're encouraging mothers and parents to participate in self-care, which is fabulous, but it's also become another thing to fit in and another thing to make sure you're doing and doing well. But, you know, it can sometimes feel like it's a whole nother level of energy because someone has to look after your kids and you have to plan it in and scheduling and da 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 And it's similar to I get really triggered if someone says to me, oh, what are your hobbies? Or like, oh, what do you like doing in your spare time? Like, because I suddenly feel, especially because my husband is a hobbies guy, like he is an activities guy. So suddenly I'm like, fuck, do I have any hobbies? Like, can I say that my work is a hobby? Can I, you know, and all of a sudden you're really embarrassed because you're like, do I have any interests? How can we self-care and hobby, but in a way that actually feels good and doesn't just lead to greater stress and greater expectations? Mm, Yeah, great question. And it seems to be a common theme that husbands have hobbies, mums don't. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so a few things about, about that. One is we know from all of the research and from probably a lot of people's lived experience who are listening that mums are carrying the majority of the load in their households when it comes to not only their mothering but the domestic load. And so it's important to separate them. Mothering, caregiving and parenting is different to housework and managing the household. They're different, right? That needs to be said. A hundred percent. You do not go to the supermarket for self-care. No. Repeat, you do not go to the supermarket for self-care. They're different, right? And so what I want to say, which I, I know is probably a bit inflammatory if there are any dads listening but 
we need to really call out dads buying their leisure time through mother's mental loads, right? Fucking oath. It's not okay that dads or the other parent in the household or the other caregiver is able to have leisure time and time out and time to spend on what really enjoys them and lights them up outside of parenting and work. And mums don't get that. It's not fair. Okay. So to notice the inequality where that's happening and to say, well, what can be shifted in our household dynamics for us to be able to make that a possibility? Like, where can we talk about opening up possibility for that to happen? And that may mean actually looking at the mental load, looking at the domestic load, looking at the caregiving load, looking at who's doing the driving, who's doing the making of appointments, all of that and going, well, where can we start dividing that up a little bit? How can we externalize what's happening? So I would just get a big whiteboard and write it all down or or some clients have worked with have had different colored post-it notes for different themed things. And once you write down what you're carrying, it is a shock because it is yeah. a lot. And other people in the household often don't realize it, how much you're actually carrying. So externalize it, make it visible, and then look at how it could be more equitably divided. But kind of backtracking a little bit from there as well around the self-care, we can't self-care our way out of systems and structures that are marginalizing us or making our lives stressful and oppressive. You know, so sometimes self-care can, the way that I feel frustrated when it's brought up in conversation or in social commentary is we identify a problem mums are having. Oh, mums are burnt out, overwhelmed, taking on too much. And then we individualize the solution and put it back on mums. Oh, you're feeling all of these things? Okay, just add self-care to the list. Great. Have a one hour massage and everything will be okay. Yeah. So we now need to solve the problems that we are experiencing that have been caused by systems outside of us. (laughs) Right. So it's a way to actually bypass responsibility and the need for social and system and cultural change. This is not all on mums individually. Yes, collectively, we have a long way to go. And yes, individually, there's absolutely stuff we can do where self-care is important. But let's also just remember that we're in this tank, right? One fish, one mother cannot change the entire tank. We need to be doing this together. And this is why I have conversations like this, so that we can start to have awareness of how much needs to change. I don't want to entirely blame the dad or the partner because I feel like what I did with my partner was I was so happy to do all these things until I wasn't. And then I needed it to change. And until I worked that out and I communicated with him that I'm overdoing this and this and this, you needed to do that. And I want to go have a drink here, or I want to go do this. He's like, that's so fine. Yeah. Let's just work out a timeline. And it didn't go that well, but you know, it, it was there baby. Was a slight breaking yeah. point in between. It was like, what the fuck? No, <laughs> but it was like baby steps to getting to a point where we both mutually felt comfortable. So it wasn't a tit for tat. So now if he wants to go and have time with his mates, it's not like, well, what am I going to do next, next week? It's, we've got this balance where we are so okay. And we understand that both of us need to fill up our cups somehow and we work on that together to make that happen. And that's important. So you, you've got to get to a point where you're happy to make that change together. And I think that self-care is so important and it's great that it gets, you know, some limelight. But I think we've got to be careful that it also doesn't add to the guilt. Like even though I was saying that my husband is a hobbies guy, he's the first person to tell me to go and do something for myself. And, you know, we do, I have said this so many times on the podcast that we have like a shared iCal. We know what each other are up to for the week. Like it's very open to book things in. But I think you have to be careful that then when you do have breaking points or times when you scream at your kids or times where you're, you know, irritable with your partner, then sometimes I find I go, oh, but I did have all this time for me. Like, why am I still acting like this? Or yeah, you know, I had a one hour massage. Why has that not reversed every bit of burnout that I've accumulated over the past four and a half years of parenthood? Like, I think that almost it can be detrimental when you then go, oh, why didn't that Pilates class make me completely full and this whole patient, forgiving, incredible person again. And also when you have a bath and you're like, I'm just letting the whole house know that I'm having self-care time and I'm having a bath and one child comes in and is like, hey, 
and you're like, oh my God, this is my one moment of self-care. It's like even having the thought of having self-care and it being interrupted can literally put you in a spiral and be like, fuck, I can't even do this. Mm. So it's just it's all it's all a lot, isn't it? It is. <laughs> We're a lot. Yeah. We're very complex. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And so a couple of really interesting things you've touched on there is a looping back to the responsibility of dads and men and fathers are oppressed under this system as well. They're impacted in different ways by the perfect mother myth, but actually part of what happens when we internalize the perfect mother myth for ourselves as mothers is we can unknowingly strip others of the opportunity to engage in caregiving and build relationship. And I mean, that can, and you know, there's a concept maternal gatekeeping around this that I don't know, that that kind of says, no, this is my role. You cannot do it. Or we feel a sense of power from being able to be in that role, but that's like probably a more complex conversation. But yeah, pointing to the fact that it's interesting, a lot of mothers, when they start unpacking this work and engaging in, okay, well, what is it? That's my values. What's the perfect mother myth? Their partners, if they are partnered, do not place these pressures on them in the same ways that they place the pressures on themselves. So I think that's a really important point and opening conversation too. The other thing is just let's really get curious about what we're defining as self-care and go beyond Mm. thinking of self-care as bubble baths and Pilates classes. And I mean, all of that obviously is really important, but self-care can also look like boundaries. Self-care can look like, no, mummy's finishing her meal before I get up and get you more. Like self-care can look like little micro things throughout your day that don't necessarily have to be the things where you go off and go out of the house or lock yourself in the bathroom. And and all that's important. Self-care is you know also making sure you're fed first and fed enough and not in this going to the toilet places going to the toilet drinking enough water being able to move your body like let's think about the things that actually feel nourishing and generative to ourselves rather than what Instagram or whatever tells us self-care should look like it's coming back to what feels good for you I would love everyone this week or whoever listens to this episode to wake up in the morning and make themselves a coffee or a tea, no matter what happens, and sit there and drink it without doing anything for anyone else first and see how it feels. Even if they're asking for toast and cereal and crying, take the sips. Mm, Yeah, yeah, because it builds up. And those little moments of nourishment we can give ourselves and, you know, asterisks, it's not always possible. Like it's not, it's not always possible. Sometimes their needs do need to come first, but where we can fit in and slot in those just moments of self-honoring, reminding us that we exist. We're not here to just serve everyone else's needs. You know, we exist and what we do is valuable and it matters and it's important. And if we aren't the center of our own lives, we can't be there and give to everybody else because we'll burn out. It's not possible. We'll, we we become so small in our own lives that it's hard to know where we exist and fit in. So claiming that time for us is for our children too. Absolutely. And I think that kind of to finish off this conversation, sometimes we can have these discussions where we say, you know, change the expectations or find more times for ourselves and honour ourselves. But at the end of the day, like the jobs list doesn't actually go away. And there's some things that still just need to get done within that day. Do you have any tips for people who are ready to kind of not take it all on themselves, like tips of ways they can outsource or tips of ways that they can just like free up some more space so that they can be less stressed? Yeah, I think it really depends upon somebody's resources because obviously there's a whole bunch of things that you could suggest and creatively come up with, but a lot of that requires either money to pay for and hire support or community or people stepping up in your life because someone needs to do the care work, right? Mm. Like it doesn't just go away. Someone needs to do the caring and it often gets left to to mum to do. So the way that I think about it is to really go, I don't need more pressure on myself right now. I need less. So I am going to really notice where I'm judging myself and what that feels like for me. And I'm not going to place a heap of pressure to de-socialize myself from the perfect mother myth after listening to this podcast. You know? mm. Just get a little bit more curious about your life. Just open a little bit of space for curiosity. Have a thought that pops in around, I shouldn't have done that, or I feel guilty, or I'm so overwhelmed and just pause and say, let me just have a 
a moment for curiosity. What else could be going on here? What's at play here? What is the possibilities that are open to me here? And just giving ourselves those little moments of openings. And when I first, when I, I became a single mother unexpectedly, and it was very intense for the first couple of years. And I had written on my bathroom mirror, 10 minutes a day, Sophie, like 10 minutes a day is going to be for you. And whether that be she's in the carrier and I go outside and I have a cup of tea and I put my feet in the grass and I just breathe in being outside and I just feel peace within myself that's enough. It's okay to say those little moments are actually huge. And not a lot of mums have the space and the support. And so if you're able to get it, go for it and grab it with both hands, because that is such a gift for you, your children, and your community. But if you're in a place where you're feeling like it's so much, just start in really, really small ways and it'll make a big difference. Wow. Thank you so much mm. for joining us today. This was yeah, an absolutely eye-opening chat for both of us mm. and for so many of our listeners. The work you do is really, really important and you are helping so many women out there. So thank you so much for all you do. Thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you to everyone who's listened to and for being open to this kind of self-inquiry and ultimately we're in this together. Yeah, and don't let this chat put any more pressure on yourself. Let it do the opposite. Let's <laughs> change the fishbowl. Yeah. That's right, ram the tank. <laughs> <laughs> Let's Thank get you. ramming this week. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.